Good morning, New Life East. How are we doing? Good morning. Someone is saying good morning. You guys are never listening to me when I get up here and start. There we go. You guys can take a seat. You've said hello to all the people you like. You've ignored all the people you don't like. You're like, we would never do that. We're good Christian people. If we haven't had the chance to meet before, my name is Rory. I'm one of the pastors here, and we are so glad. Uh, If you're a guest, especially that you've joined us, um, we know that being a guest in a church for the first time can be a bit of a daunting experience. We'd love to say hi to you after service in Connect Central, so stop by there. Uh, Pastor Andrew is up at New Life North today. He's not preaching, so don't worry. You're not missing out on anything better than what you're going to get here. Um, He's just hanging out up there, uh, working as a service host. So you guys get me this morning, which I know... Yeah, it's great. It's great. Um, we've been in a series called Learning Love, and it's been all through the book of 1 John, which is this short letter that John wrote uh, to a church. And one of the things that we've talked about is, is for John, so much of his identity in his writing is really just grappling around the ideas of love and how he ex- sees that expressed in the person that he knew in Jesus, but also how he continues to see it expressed. And uh, in full transparency, for me, preaching the book of 1 John is a little bit of a challenging thing because of the way John writes. John doesn't write sort of in these very linear thoughts. He keeps coming back over and over and over again to the same ideas, right? Some of you guys have noticed this. You've been like, man, you guys keep saying the same thing over and over again, week after week in this series. And so sitting down to write a sermon as we head into this gets a little bit challenging. So what I want to do is sort of focus on a theme or an idea that keeps repeating itself and reiterating itself in the book of 1 John, and it's this idea of confidence. He uses this word a couple of times, and he he uses it in different ways, so it has some nuance to it. Um, But if you have a Bible, turn with me to 1 John. We'll be in chapter 2. I have had like four cups of coffee this morning. I am wired, um, courtesy of loyal coffee, you know, shameless plug, send the check. Um, 1 John chapter 2, verse 28 John writes, and now, dear children, everyone say children, continue in him so that when he appears, we may be confident and unashamed before him at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you know that everyone who does what is right has been born of him. See what great love the Father has lavished on us that we would be called children of God. And this is what we are. The reason the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Dear friends, now, everyone say now, we are children of God, and that, and what we will be has not yet been made known, but what we know that when Christ appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. All who have this hope in him purify themselves just as he is pure. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of the Lord, and all God's people said, let's pray. God, we have been reminded of your goodness today, and surely that is the thing that sits beneath every idea about you, every scripture that's ever been penned about you, every story that's ever been told. It's the idea that you are, in fact, good. What an image that you're the kind of God that that goodness isn't just like static sitting somewhere, and if we're lucky, we can stumble into it and find it, but it's the idea that you and your goodness are in constant pursuit of us trying to make it clear for us who we are, trying to make it clear for us who you are so that we could see you clearly. So God, what we ask today is that as we open these scriptures that you would open our eyes to see them in a fresh way. 
you would open our minds, form new pathways in our brain, help us think about life differently, help us think about life in the way that you have always created it to be. Would you help us become the people of the kingdom of God that Jesus has invited us to be? We ask all this in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and all God people said, amen. Amen. So this idea that John keeps sort of circling around is what it means to have confidence. And for John, this word confidence is completely connected to the person of Jesus, right? They're not, they're not separate. What he's talking about here is not like the feeling you have when you walk into a public space, if you have confidence in yourself and can carry yourself that way. That's not what he's getting at. For John, the word confidence is directly connected to whatever it is that Jesus has done on the cross and how it has affected all of humanity and all of the world. In the Old Testament, the idea of confidence is really just this, this idea of bold trust. That invitation is extended all the time in the Old Testament when God's people would be up against the wall. They would be in the midst of a battle. They would be in the midst of slavery, whatever it was. The call, the invitation was always from the prophets or from God himself was to have confidence that God was good and would in fact deliver them and take care of them and ultimately bring them into a new space of living. In the New Testament, this idea gets expanded quite a bit. Confidence becomes not just an idea about God, but what you see is that confidence becomes a word that's often associated when someone, uh, an apostle, a preacher, a prophet, whatever, would stand in the middle of a city and would declare the gospel. The word confidence is frequently used in those scenarios because the word is inviting the audience members who are hearing the gospel, hearing these stories for the first time, to then give their confidence, to give their bold trust back to the idea. But in the New Testament, there's this premise that you also have to trust like the messenger who is delivering the message. And so when John uses his words confidence and he's talking about Jesus, he's not just talking about some theological idea, right? He's not just talking about the, the, the truth is, is that when Jesus has lived, died, and been resurrected from the dead, All of humanity has been altered because of it. All of the cosmos has been changed. The cross has transformed everything. It's brought things from death to life. It's, It's shown the way that the kingdom works in the world. And so there's an invitation to have confidence in that, that it has actually changed everything about the world. But it's also confidence to have trust in who Jesus himself is. It's not just a confidence in some idea about what the resurrection has done. It's confidence in that like all of who Jesus was is worth putting some level of bold trust into. So when John talks about confidence, it has this loaded picture to it. It has two implications to it. One, that the resurrection, the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus is both a completely true and real thing. It's not something we have to wonder about if this really happened. It becomes, for John, as much a part of history as anything has been. But the second implication that sort of draws out of it is that the confidence that John is talking about is not just about Jesus, it actually becomes a statement about us. Now, this is not me trying to like sort of make the scripture sort of like narcissistic and it's all about you and I, but there is something interesting that John does every time he uses the word confidence is he calls his audience children every time. Every time he brings up that word, he calls them children, he calls them friend. He's making a statement, not just about what God has done in the person of Jesus, but he's making a statement about them. You can see it in the scriptures we just read. He calls his audience children, but he doesn't just call them children of God. He makes sure that they know they are children of God who are also deeply loved. 
And he even stretches beyond that in his writing. We're going to get to some of these verses in a minute. But he stretches it beyond that and says, it's not just that you are children of God. It's not just that you are children of God who are deeply loved by God. You are also children of God who are deeply loved by God. And this God is not the kind of God who's sort of looming over you, waiting to cast down judgment and destroy you. He's the kind of God who is worth trusting and believing in. So the confidence that he's talking about is not confidence we place in ourselves. It's not confidence of anything we've done. It's confidence in that what God has invited us into is a completely new identity. This is the invitation for us today, even as we think about it. So the first thing, if, if, if all of this confidence that John talks about is about Christ, the first thing I want to sort of relate to you guys today is that confidence in Christ automatically creates a new identity. And it creates confidence for us in that new identity. Think, we can sort of stretch beyond his letters. Think about the way John starts his gospel. He says this. This is him just talking about what has happened with Jesus' arrival. He says this. He says, the true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him yet. To all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become what? Children of God. Children born not of natural descent. So whatever this is, is not a statement about how you were born, nor of human decision or a husband's will, but born of God. And we, I think, don't get the full ramifications of John even putting this pen to paper and saying, you have been given the right to be called children of God, the sort of massiveness of it. In the Old Testament worldview, there's like very clear specifications on who gets to be called a child of God, right? When you read the Old Testament, it's, it's always Israel and Israel alone. Everyone else in the universe is excluded from the identification of being a child of God. You had to follow all the right rules. You had to do the right rituals. You had to, in many ways, be born in the right place at the right time with the right group of people. And that was when Israel was like getting things right for this short stretch of time. That's when you could be called a child of God. But something happens with the death and resurrection of Jesus. We see this all throughout the New Testament is that the, the adoption statement gets opened wide. It gets stretched to all people in every place. So who has a right to become a child of God? Well, everyone. White, black, brown, you're a child of God. Wealthy, poor, you're a child of God. Conservative, liberal. Yes, you are both still children of God. The door gets swung wide open in the person of Jesus. This man living in ancient Israel somehow opens up what the kingdom of God is to all sorts of people. Everyone gets a right to be called it. And friends, this is a grace, which is to say that it's a gift. You have not done a thing to deserve this. You have not done a thing to like be entitled to it. Jesus just extends it as a gift. And here's the great thing there's nothing you can do about it. You can't mess it up. You can't change his mind. You don't outgrow it. You don't sort of age out of being a child of God. This is what you are. Your confidence in Christ creates a new identity, and there should be confidence in that identity. I was driving. uh, I picked my son up from daycare the other day. My son, Huck, he, uh, he turns four on Tuesday. And uh, so we were talking about him getting ready to turn four, and he, he's really fascinated about him, like, changing ages. He thinks it's, like, a really cool thing. And we're driving in the car, and he goes, Dad, I'm going to turn four. And I go, yeah, that's true. And he goes, you know, Mom's not going to love me after I turn four. 
And I was, I was like, oh, why do you think that? He goes, well, mom really loves me as a three-year-old. Like, she, she really loves me, like, right now. And he goes, she even, like, cried the other day when we were talking about me turning four. And I was like, it's like, okay, we'll deal with that later. He was like, mom really loves me now that I'm three. He's not, she's not going to love me when I'm older. And I go, oh, buddy. I go, that's not true. I was like, your mom is going to love you, like, no matter how old you are. Like, you're, you can be 50, and your mom is still going to be like, this is my son, and I love him so much, so deeply. You can't really, like, you can't move past it, but you're just, like, you're your mom's kid, and she loves you. That's just what there is to it. My son Huck in his car seat goes, oh, okay. I was like, wow, you just kind of accepted that. You were like, okay, cool. My mom's going to, like, love me. I can't really do anything. I can't age out of it. I can't change it. The same is true in your life with God. There's nothing you can really do to alter it. And the way that God works is he is constantly trying to remind you of this identity. I do this with both of my kids as well. Every night before bed, um, this is not the like, let me tell you how great of a parent I am because this might be the only thing I'm getting right. But every night before bed, I like grab my kids and I go, hey, I need you to look me in the eyes, which is challenge number one. I need you to look me in the eyes. I go, hey, do you know that I love you? And I've taught them. They're supposed to go, yes. Go, do you know that I love you no matter what good things you do? Yes. Do you know that I love you no matter what bad things you do? They say yes to the second one a lot faster. I go, you know who else loves you that way? And that's usually where the game kicks in because they start listing names of people that they know in their life that they think love them. So they're like, mom, uh, Miss Shailene, uh, my sister, my grandma, my cousin. They start naming everybody. And the goal is to get them to go, do you know who else loves you like that? God. Trying to instill in them this idea that you, you're a child of God. You can't actually like rip this away from you, no matter how much you run, no, how, no matter much, how hard you try to sort of escape the identifier. You can't age out of it. It's just what you are. Half of our battle with identity in the world in which we live is that so many of us refuse to just believe and accept that that is what we are. You can't, you can't get out of it. You can't run from it. You can't, like, theologize your way around it. You're like, well, some people are children of God. Some people. <clears throat> you can't do that. That's not what God sort of extends to us. And yet, even talking about this, you guys recognize the great challenge of the spiritual life when we talk about this, when we talk about the confidence in Christ and how it creates a confidence in our identity. I can't tell you the amount of people when I have a conversation like this, the words that come out of their mouths are this. I'm a child of God, but, and they proceed to list all the reasons that they probably are not. I'm a child of God, but, but like I've, I've messed up a lot of things. Like I get, I, I hear the Bible, I see what you're saying, I'm a child of God, but I've like ruined my marriage. I'm a child of God, but where you don't know the things that have like transpired in my life that have happened to me, you don't know the things that have been done to me. Like I'm, I'm damaged goods. Like I'm a child of God, but, and what we end up doing with our identity is we end up putting so many caveats behind it. Like I know God loves me. I know it's, I know I'm secure in him. I know that I have confidence in what he's done, which means my whole identity has been shaped and transformed into something new. I know all this, but... 
And some of you are like, yeah, this is the voice that plays over and over again in my head. I'm a child of God, but listen, John, what's fascinating about him, it's as if he knew how the human consciousness would sort of evolve over time and develop the thoughts we would have. He writes this in 1 John chapter 3, just a, couple, just a chapter later, he says this, this is how we know that we belong to the truth and how we set our hearts at rest in his presence. If our hearts condemn us, we know that God is greater in our hearts, greater than our hearts. And he, he knows everything. Dear friends, if our hearts do not condemn us, we have, what's the word? Confidence before God. Now, here's what's fascinating about what John says here. The word for heart in these verses is cardia. It's the Greek word cardia. You can see how we get heart, right? Cardio, cardiovascular, you see it. The reason that John uses that word is in the Greek world, the way that they thought about like the center of your being was your heart. Right? It's the thing that keeps you alive. It pumps blood for you. It makes sure that you're breathing. It runs everything. If anyone in here, if any of our hearts stopped, we would all freak out. It would be a massive emergency. We get that. But the idea that John is presenting here is not like about your physical body's center. It's about like the very person that you are, the very center of your being, your, your identity. I think a better way to maybe think about that word that he uses is not heart as much as it's more like what we would talk about in the modern world is your conscience, that voice that's in the back of your head that's sort of driving how you make decisions. It's driving how you think about things in life. I believe that in like the Christian worldview, your conscience becomes completely transformed by the Spirit of God. It speaks to you. It helps you discern. It helps you make right decisions. So what John is actually sort of saying here is that your conscience has the ability to find rest in the presence of God. And if your conscience attempts to keep reminding you of all the places that you have screwed up, we know that God's voice is actually a much more trusted source to tell us who we are. So the problem is not, am I a child of God? But the problem is that many of us have begun to believe those words that have sort of spoken to us. And can I tell you, friends, those voices that you hear are not the spirit, but it is deep deep shame. The thing that has begun to speak to you and have the most sway over your identity ends up not being the spirit of God at all. It ends up being the shame that you carry around with you. So what I want to say to you this morning is that confidence that John is talking about, it gives us an assurance that not even shame can alter your new identity. It can't change it. You can't play the I'm a child of God card, but, but nothing. This confidence that John is talking about in Christ gives us an assurance that not even shame can alter our identity. I think about the work of Kurt Thompson, who's a psychologist and a writer, and he says this. He says this. He says, researchers have described shame as a feeling that is deeply associated with a person's sense of self. Read identity there. Shame gets attached to your identity. Apart from any interactions with others, guilt, on the other hand, emerges as a result of something I've done that negatively affects someone else. I don't have time to dive into this, but guilt, not a bad thing. Guilt is a good thing. We should have moments if we mess up where we're like, ah, that didn't go so well. Guilt is something I feel because I've done something bad, and here's the gold. Shame is something I feel because what? I am bad. What shame does is it settles into your conscience, it settles into your spirit, and it begins to tell you all the things that you have messed up are in fact not just like moments where you have gotten it wrong, they're, in fact, the clearest, most significant definers of your identity, which is completely contrary to what John is trying to get at for us. Uh, I think when I was 
21, 22, I was working at uh, the first church I went on staff at after college. And uh, my boss, his name was Paul, he calls me one morning and he says, hey, I need you to run with me to downtown Fort Worth and we have to go to JPS, which is a hospital down there. And I'll tell you the story while we're on the way. And I was like, fantastic. I love nothing more than going to a hospital at seven in the morning with no context. As we're driving, he tells me the story of this couple who's a part of our church and they've been around for a while. And things had not been going super well, and a lot of it was due to the husband. His name was Thad. Thad had become massively depressed, became an alcoholic, and was pretty self-destructive. And what evidently had happened the night before was that Thad, his family, was completely out of the house. His fam- he himself had attempted to take his own life. And so we were on the way down to see Thad after he had gone through this massive surgery. And without giving too many details, because I don't know what can be triggering for people who are also wrestling with these ideas, is that Thad was not successful in his attempt to take his own life, but it left him with a lot of physical deformities, primarily on his face. So when I meet Thad for the very first time, Thad comes out and he's literally wrapped up like a mummy. I can can see like an opening where his mouth should be. I can see like a stub for where his nose is. The rest of his body is wrapped up. He has a hat on. This is my first time meeting Thad. And we get in the car, and he sort of tries to tell us what has happened over the last few days, and he can only really write it out, and he's just pouring his life out to us, this life that has become broken and fractured. And it's mostly because of the choices he's made. And so over the next year or so, myself and and my boss, Paul, we would spend our time driving Thad from place to place, helping him get groceries, helping him get the care that he needs, so on and so forth. And so I would have conversations with Thad. And Thad, through this, was like he was sort of coming back to church. He was trying to figure out his life. He's trying to, like, put everything back together. He's lost his family at this point. He's lost everything. He has no job. And what Thad begins to open up and tell me is that he doesn't believe there's any way that his life can sort of be okay again. And I asked him why. And he just starts pointing at himself. He's pointing at his face. See, for Thad, the problem isn't just that he had messed up. For Thad, the problem was that every morning when he woke up and looked in the mirror, he was reminded of those things over and over and over again. He couldn't get away from it. And I got to be real honest with you, I'm not sure that he ever got away from it. When I talked to him, I would say to him, man, Jesus has already taken care of that and is willing to keep taking care of it. But that's really hard to believe when you wake up every morning and you keep looking in the mirror and you keep seeing all the places that you've messed up. And friends, this is the great trap of the enemy when it comes to knowing who we really are, is that for some of you, the the messaging that plays on a loop in your head is not a reminder of who you really are. It's a reminder of all the places that you have, in fact, messed up. And it is that shame that attempts to rob you of the confidence that you have in God, that with God, you are, in fact, a new creation. You are a loved son or daughter. You are not just loved, but you are loved. And he is not looming over you, waiting to sort of cast you down and destroy you. This is the kind of God that we worship, friends, that he is interested, quite frankly, because what the cross doesn't just do is sort of like eradicate sin at this large level. It also looks to reach into the deepest places of shame and go, hey, you don't actually owe God anything. God has 
okay with you. Great theologians throughout history have made the point that some of the greatest sources of anxiety in the life of a follower of Jesus is the question of, am I really okay with God? And what John is getting at is, yes, you are okay with God. God is not waiting for you to ruin it, and he is certainly not the voice speaking damaging, brutal thoughts over your life. You are a child of God, and you are a child of God who is loved. Listen, the last thing I recognize that John is sort of getting at with confidence here is ultimately that because we're children, we've been given that as a gift. There's nothing we can do to take it away. And yet what this confidence also does is calls us to a higher level of character. Every time John talks about confidence, it is almost always set up with you're a child of God, you're a friend of God, you are loved by God. There's nothing that can be done to take that away from you. And yet, if all of that is true, there is a call to how we are to live and organize our lives. This is not like a litmus test to see if you can get it right and maybe he'll take away your like identity. He's like, this is who you are. Live from it. You're not earning it. You're not fighting for it. You don't live for it. You live from it. And that's the complete difference. I think about myself. Um, I became a Christian when I was 16. And what I would love to tell you about that story of me becoming a Christian is that when I became a Christian, I went home that night and all of the brokenness and sin in my life was just eradicated. I would love to tell you guys that. It'd make a better story than the one I have. But it wasn't like that at all. In fact, what Eugene Peterson often refers to the life of faith as a long obedience in the same direction. I would say my experience of the life of faith is more like a long dragging in one direction. God is just like, we go over here now and we do things differently. It wasn't like I woke up and sin was just sort of eradicated from my life. Now sin, we use a lot of different words to describe what sin really is, what it, how it finds itself into our lives, how it plays out. One of the ways that some of like more of the Christian psychologists have started to talk about sin is that what sin ends up being for many of us is any attempt to fill a void in our life where God has meant to fill that void. So sin often shows itself, right? Sexual sin is really us trying to fill the void of intimacy and we can't quite figure out how to do that with God so we end up going haywire. Sin that is, is physical and violent is us attempting to sort of create safety and security for us when God promises to be the safety and security and the covering that we need. Lying becomes our attempt to fill this void of security, insecurity even in ourselves. And so what God is, what John is saying here when he thinks about the life of faith as it comes from a place of confidence is you can either live in a way that is deeply insecure. I'm looking for something, anything, anything I could find to fill the void. Money will fill the void. Oh my gosh, it'll make me feel so secure. It won't. So there's a difference between that and living securely. And what I found in my life is that the way that God started to eradicate things in my life was he would keep reminding me of who I actually was. He didn't like eliminate those things. He would just keep reminding me of who I actually was. I think about what John writes in 1 John chapter 3, starting in verse 2. He says, Dear friends, now we are children of God, and what we, what we will be has not yet been made known. But we know that when Christ appears, we shall be like him. 
For we shall see him as he is. All who have this hope in them purify themselves just as he is pure. Everyone who sins breaks the law. In fact, sin is lawlessness. But you know that he appeared so that he might what? Take away our sins. And in him is no sin. So no one who lives in him can keep on sinning. No one who continues to sin has either seen him or know him. For John, the idea is that our holiness, our purification, comes not by the things that we can sort of manipulate and fill the void on. It comes simply by the work of the Spirit in our own lives. And the way the Spirit works is by reminding us of who we are. See, the truth is, for many of us, our identity has not been marked by this. It's been marked by a lot of other things. You walk around with the, I'm a child of God, but you have no idea the damage that I've done. Can I tell you, friends? You're still a child of God. It doesn't get ripped away from you. Your identity is like as secure as can be, and you can be confident in that. You can trust it. Because our God is worth trusting. He's worth believing that what he has for you, what he is making you into, is far more true than what any lie of shame tells you about yourself. And you can also trust that what he is doing with you slowly but surely is just reminding you of who you are. And it is that reminder that will form you into the image of Christ. Friends, can we stand, if you're able, this morning as we prepare to go to the table? We know that the primary way that Jesus has secured this and given us confidence in this and what is what he has done on the cross. And we remember all of that every time we step to the table. In fact, that's the beauty of the invitation of the table is that there is not like a qualifier looming around it. There's not a thing that's saying, well, did you get it right? Did you get it wrong? Maybe you should take this. Maybe you shouldn't. The table is like wide open. It's wide open. So we remember that on the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took bread and he broke it and said, this is my body, which is given for you. Every time you eat, would you do this in remembrance of me? That same night he took the cup and said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. And I'm constantly reminded that Jesus's words that it's a new covenant is simply him reiterating the promise that he will never leave you nor forsake you. He will not abandon you. There is nothing you can do to separate yourself from the love of God. You can sure try, but what we see time and time again is that his goodness and his love will just run you down. Friends, this is it. So I wanna invite our communion servers to come forward. We'll have two lines for them here in the middle of the room. If you're on this side, you'll come down on here. This side, you'll come down here. One of them will serve you a gluten-free cracker representing the body of Christ. You'll take that, you'll dip it into the juice that represents the blood of Christ, which has been shed for you. Friends, let me pray over us, and then you are welcome to come and receive communion. God, God, to be reminded of your goodness is to be reminded of your love, and that's what has happened here. That you love us enough to step out of the very spaces of space and time itself and step into the real world to lay down your life as a sacrifice for many. And in that sacrifice, in that atonement, what we find is that we have been made right with you. There is no anxiety between us and between you, Lord. So would you remind us of that today? That you have called us sons and daughters of God, that there is not a thing that we have done to earn it, and there is not a thing that we can do 
to rip it away. God, would you also remind the people in here who feel like life has happened to them, that their identity has been shaped not by the things that they believe, but their identity has been shaped by the things that have happened to them. That God, your voice is still the clearest voice. That they are still sons and daughters of God. This is what we are. And would you help us to live into that character? That what we are doing is not earning your love or earning righteousness. We are simply echoing the kind of love that we have seen. And we're walking in it. God, would you help us do such things? We ask all this in the name of Jesus, we pray.